Welcome. I was trying to think of something kind of funny and humorous to destroy our intro, and I have nothing, Rob. It's, it's hard, right? Because we've all been in a meeting for like an hour and a half before this, and uh, maybe this is going to be a very serious potluck episode, guys. Stick to the outline. I doubt it. Not Welcome with me to here. Fast Talk. And not with the way you guys were lighting me up in that meeting. Well, I have to get it we out of the way. We were complimenting you. You Just, okay. complimented me once. No, I, well, exactly. <laughs> but so did that, I insult We're keeping tabs. <laughs> so that everybody knows there is an algorithm. Rob did. We can compliment Grant once every <laughs> 20th comments. And so there has to be 19 negatives and then a positive. And I think right now we're at about 10 negatives. So I got 10 more to give you. And then Grant... I'm going to make so your Grant, day. how is this show doing for your self-esteem? Well, you know, it was probably too high to begin with, so it just kind of gets it back to a, a standard place, I think. For a while there, I thought I was a good coach. <laughs> you are a good coach. <laughs> then I interact with you people. That's why we have to cut you down. You're too good. Oh. By the time we are done, you will be a mediocre coach. <laughs> we <laughs> promise you. You're done. Hey, potluck? Potluck. Potluck. This is potluck season, right? And Griffin, welcome oh, to Potluck. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. No, I want to talk about food. I don't want to talk about Griffin. She's got a big <laughs> big cup of coffee. Tea. She's got, oh, tea. tea. Got the right spirit here. I'm close enough. I can see it. For nearly two years, Fast Talk Laboratories has brought you the craft of coaching with Joe Friel, the ultimate resource to become a better, more successful, and happier coach. We've bundled some of the most popular pieces of content from all 14 craft of coaching modules to reshare in what we're calling the Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel Coaches Picks, which includes a star-powered panel of featured experts like Dr. Stacey Sims, Dr. Andy Kirkland, Jim Miller, Victoria Brumfield, and Jim Rupford. This incredible library will provide a lasting legacy and guiding life for endurance coaches for many years to come. Check out the Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel Coaches Choice at FastTalkLabs.com. So, we got questions. We got questions. Do we have answers? We got answers. That we'll wait and see. Okay. Well, we're going to go out of order here because I have a question. And it's not my standard training question, but it is a question that I think everybody faces at some point. That I know my answer to it every single time is absolutely the wrong answer. <laughs> so, I'm going to throw it to you guys. But let me paint the picture because I just had this experience. I was preparing for my big race, Tobago. I was on the best form I had been on in a couple years. I was getting my AFib under control. I was excited. I invested a lot of money in this race. I thought I was going to go there and perform really well. And the day before the race, I went out for my race prep ride. You know, I could tell I was feeling a little off, but I was thinking, well, you know, I've just arrived in really hot weather, so that's probably what's going on. Went out for what I thought was a pretty hard ride and went, wow, I must have averaged like 220, 230 watts and looked at my power meter and it was 130 watts. And I went, okay, my power meter's not calibrated. It's always the answer. And Just so you know, kind of, it's always, it's always the always answer. I kind of ignored that. But as I'm getting towards dinner, I start getting a sore throat. And again, I'm sitting there going, that's just the weather. Yep. And it was an interesting night. You called me that night. I did. And Griffin and I had a good talk. And then I tried to go to bed and went, I feel awful. And didn't sleep that night, but still tried to convince myself things were okay. Got on the bike the next day, went to the race, survived about an hour of the race, and then barely pedaled back to the hotel. The next day, I'm like, well, I'm going to be fine now. And I took lots of naps and everything else. And actually finished that stage, but about an hour in, I just tanked. I got popped and finished way back. The third day, which was the crit, I just skipped because the last day was my big day and it's this super hard five-hour race and tried to convince myself I was healthy for it. We were riding out to it. I was feeling pretty good, felt strong going out, tried to lead up the first climb to convince myself I'm doing well and then exploded, got popped on the flats Rode to the other end of the island where you hit the big climbs. Got over the first climb, but had to walk half of it. Nice. Got to the second <laughs> climb, somehow got over it, and was still convincing myself, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to start feeling better. That third climb might have been the worst climb of my life. I absolutely was dying. Somehow got over it. Somehow finished the descent. Then got off my bike and got in the car. So that was a huge disappointment because I had really cared about that race. So here's my question. 
What do you do when you have a target event and that happens? You get sick. Grant, before this episode, we were talking about a local cyclocross race. And I don't know that that's on the same level that Trevor's talking about right now. Something that we do need to address is the fact that Trevor invested so much time, money, effort, travel, so on and so forth. But I think a great place to start in just an objective place is you and your past situation where there was a local cyclocross race and you weren't feeling so hot before it. Yeah, no, I had a very similar situation last week. On Friday, I spent the night, uh, the day in bed, had a fever. Normally, I would have just ignored it because I would have had too much to do, but I just had a pretty easy day, so I like actually gave in to being sick. And I wasn't going to go race the next day, the local race. And um, my son was going out for his first race. And he goes, well, dad's not going to do it. He said we were going to do it together, so I'm not going to do it. So I put on my kit and sucked it up and went out and did the race with the expectation I was going to feel pretty awful. And so I think from my point of view, there is something really important in this. And the piece of that puzzle is that it's so easy to stand there and just say, I have to convince myself that I'm going to be all right. Mm -hmm. I I have to stay positive and just be positive no matter what. This is going to work out. This is going to work out. This is going to work out. From a mental strength point of view, that's the worst thing you can possibly do. Because what ends up happening is you sit there and you're giving yourself all this positivity that deep down you know is wrong. Mm -hmm. And eventually you're faced with the fact that it's wrong And your brain goes, see, I knew I was sick. It undermines you. Yeah, it it really can create a a problem. Instead, I think the approach that has to be made is, you know, I I came all this way. Do I really want to sit in a hotel room for four days and not participate, not enjoy the island, not enjoy what I'm doing? To me, I think the advice I would be giving an athlete is, yeah, you're sick. It's okay. What can you still pull out of this experience that you can feel as a positive? And Admit that you're sick. You're not going to feel your best. And then you may give yourself an opportunity to surprise yourself just that little bit. And that feeds some positivity on top of itself instead of this scenario where we're going to be feeding negativity on top of itself. That's a really important thing because I can tell you the whole race, I was deluding myself. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, oh, this is just a little cold. Just the race? It'll be 24 hours. Well, we can talk about my general (laughs) delusions on another episode, but... I was convinced myself with just a little 24-hour cold mm-hmm. and I could ride through this. It actually, And I feel horrible for the person sitting beside me because the day after the race, I woke up and I went, well, crap, now I'm feeling fine. And then I got on the plane and it was a six-hour flight. Yeah. And on that plane trip, I had the realization of, oh, I'm really sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I was coughing the whole flight and you could see the guy beside me looking at me. <laughs> Rightfully so, going, what the hell? And I'm like, I didn't even think to bring a mask because I didn't think I was sick until now. Right, right. So I think it's easy to get in that place where you're just like, no, no, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. And we make some poor choices, even if it's as simple as the mask, because we're convincing ourselves we're okay. You said something earlier that that is the worst thing to do. And I think what you also drew attention to was the second you deny the absolute reality of the situation, your baseline immediately moving forward for that feedback loop between your mind, your body, and your performance becomes no longer reliable to yourself. Right. And, and mm-hmm. so I think that's really important to understand is we're acknowledging a baseline reality, we're calling it what it is, and then from there, this feedback loop has a better relationship with the athlete or they have a better relationship with their baseline to adjust, to modify, to adjust expectations, to regulate their internal talk. But if we deny that baseline right away, then how is anything else after that trustworthy? Right. So what we do right away is we're saying, okay, I'm supposed to be normal me and everything's graded or judged against normal me. If you can go in there and say, okay, maybe I'm 80% of me or maybe I'm some version of me. I don't know what that version is, but I'm not my best and that's okay. So what can I do at not my best and still do get something out of this? And so, you know, in that race at Valmont, I had a couple of people look at me and go, man, you looked miserable. And they say, are you all right? I'm like, no, I wasn't really feeling that good. And that's probably why I was miserable. And then I had other people say to me, man, you look like you were having a blast because there were parts of that race that I was having an absolute blast. Mm-hmm. Right. Times I felt awful physically 
I was still actually enjoying the process and enjoying what I was doing. It was just like, man, this kind of sucks because we're going up these stairs and I'm normally really good at this. And God, it just feels bad. I think that this switch in mindset is really important, right? Because ultimately that defines what success is. Right. You know, Trevor, in, in your situation, your race, you didn't have that switch in mindset. And it sounds like on that longest, hardest stage, you tried to approach it with the same results sort of driven mindset that you would normally do. And you attacked, you're leading up a climb. And maybe that's what undermined you for the rest of the race, right? Where if you had had that switch and recognized and said, yeah, I am not at my best today. I need to change my tactics. I still want to be successful. I think even if that success is still performance, we had a conversation with Kiel Reinen where he was like, I've done the best in races I had the worst legs in because I changed how I went about the race and I didn't attack and I sat in and and ultimately that led to my success, right? He was still successful in a performance standpoint. It doesn't mean you have to go back right. to this fluffy process, you know, uh, <laughs> find the positive in anything thing that Grant loves to do. Um you can still have success on the performance side, but you have to recognize the situation you're in. Holding back on those climbs, not putting in the effort could have led to you being more successful, even if it, that is just finishing the stage. Sure. In, in this particular case, with how brutal that final stage is, it is still the hardest single-day race I've ever done. Looking back, there was no way I was finishing it, but I think you're right. I, I could have approached it a little differently. I think what's interesting is none of you have given a concrete answer to the, the original question, which just says so much about the fact. First, we're first ride, look for you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, ride this out with me for a second. Trevor talked about a terrible racing experience, being sick, and then says, what do you do in that instance? And none of you said, oh, well, you just don't race or you don't whatever. The only time that this came up, and I'm, I'm applauding this, like I'm, yeah. there's a way around I'm, I'm making here. But like 10 minutes later, you said, well, maybe if you have a fever. Yeah. But everything else was about just adjusting mindset, adjusting expectations of what you're getting out of it and how you're approaching and then allowing yourself to potentially be surprised once you have done that. So my one is, how cool. That says so much about the fact of what you do specifically. But two, are there maybe a few like absolute <laughs> lines we should be? No, thank you. And I'm just going to add one other thing to that conversation, which is another thing nobody raised that I actually felt guilty about is I was sick. I was contagious. When you're riding in a Peloton, people don't like to face this, but bodily fluids get around. Was I being irresponsible as well going in the race? Well, now that you bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that that's the question should i or shouldn't i have yeah you know this isn't the greatest place it depends no um this <laughs> isn't the greatest place for me because i don't want to give a concrete and the reason i don't is because the time the money and the effort you put into getting to that race i don't want to turn to somebody and say no you shouldn't if you have a fever you shouldn't race based on everything that i've been told by people far smarter than me if you have a fever, don't race. If you've got stuff coming out all over the place and you're snotting and spitting and all over the people around you, yeah, you probably ought to think about that before you participate in the race. But if you're in that place where nothing's coming out yet, I mean, I don't know. Another general recommendation too that I've heard is that if the symptoms are above the neck, neck. that you're good to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they're below the neck, that physically in terms of your just overall bodily health, yeah. you should probably hold back. Yeah, because you can do more damage, right? If you if that's where you can get to pneumonia or you can go down that road of walking is, pneumonia. Is it, is it worth it though at some times? Yeah, You're putting yourself in that position where you're running the risk of making it worse, but taking an opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we go back to the example you were making about an athlete trying to make a team or trying to make trials, I, I have told many a 50 freestyle, this is a 20 second race. I'm coughing like crazy. Don't breathe. Yep. And not in the point of like, you have to do this. Just in mm -hmm. that point of, listen, understand what you're being asked to do here. And maybe you can do this despite the fact that you feel not so good. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. But most of the time, I, I don't know that I've ever had an athlete come back to me afterwards and say, I wish I hadn't tried. Do other athletes get ticked off when someone's next to them super sick? I don't. I don't even think about it, to be completely honest. But yeah, no, my, my team was actually annoyed with me that I didn't race the third day. <laughs> 
even though they knew I was sick. I wouldn't huh. be concerned in an outdoor situation. No, yeah, yeah. Now, we're not talking about you being on the team bus. Uh, maybe you shouldn't be eating dinner with everybody. I agree with that. Things of that Which nature. Which I avoid. Right? I didn't go yeah. to the team meetings. I ate by myself. That, yeah. that I was careful about. But, I mean, if I was riding behind you and I was a little concerned that you were hacking up a lung, I'd then I'd move. pass your slow ass, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's all. <laughs> beep. Sorry, I'll, I'll post beep, Mike. <laughs> well, yeah, you're going to get dropped soon enough, so it really wouldn't matter. So Griffin, I will give you my answer in retrospect. Mm-hmm. When I went to that first day and saw how bad I felt, I don't regret going to the first day. I should have pulled the plug there. Mm-hmm. And maybe seeing if I just took two complete days off, if I could have resurrected the final day. But I think going to the second day when I knew I still wasn't feeling well and finishing the whole day was a mistake. But all of this is about being clear with what you're trying to achieve and to accomplish, right? And, yeah. you know, Grant, you just had the conversation of, hey, if you're feeling sick, you can still get out there. It's worth the risk. I think that that's appropriate and amazing advice for people who are trying to be top performers right. and who and have that, something riding. And that was the context in which it, exactly. that was given. Yeah. But that is not necessarily the yeah. right recommendation mm-hmm. if you're in the middle of your local cyclocross season mm-hmm. and state championships is two weeks away. Right. Exactly. Maybe today you need to pull back because that is the emphasis. Right. And, and in your situation, Trevor, you and you've talked about this before, that fifth day, if I remember correctly, is the big one. It's the one that you're geared up towards. Your training was along that. Maybe as you're saying now, the correct decision should have been, hey, ultimately, I wasn't focused on the whole week of racing. I was really focused on that fifth day. And you should have aligned your actions maybe around that because that's what success is. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I'll point out, and then we'll shift to the next question, is this was the end of the season. So this was okay. But I was sick, really sick for three weeks after that. Yep. And I'm certain trying to race through it added mm-hmm. a week or two yeah. to that. Had I done that in the middle of the season, that could have ended my season. Now, I think we should probably revisit this subject at some point, And I think we should bring on a doctor because there are a bunch of people listening right now that Griffin. are going, why does this always happen? Why do I always get sick when I rest for my big event? Oh, wow. why do I always I get sick love right to... after the season is over? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Well, I would love to revisit that on an episode because there's actually a few different takes to that. And you have a few different type of people, people who get sick right before, people who succumb during, mm-hmm. and then people who after the big event has finished, it takes a couple of days and then their body and mind catch up. And then it's like their body allows them to. Yep. I know a, a cross racer who uh, multiple streak of national championships, who said every year without fail, a sinus infection, and they were always finishing antibiotics the week that they were going to cross nationals Mm -hmm. every year. Mm -hmm. Yep. I can tell you why it happened to me. You'll get a good laugh out of this. Okay. So here was my lead in to Tobago. I flew out to Philadelphia. Okay. Spent two days walking in Expo. Mm -hmm. I love these looks on Brad's (laughs) face. So I spent Thursday, Friday walking in Expo. Mm Mm-hmm. Then Friday, drove five hours up to Ithaca, New York, mm-hmm. spent the weekend- There's in your a, problem right there. Yes. Spent that Steve. weekend in the hospital. Why were you in the hospital? Visiting a friend. Oh, okay. Okay. But I was in a hospital. <laughs> Very important context there. A lot of He's sick like, people in the COVID. hospital. <laughs> the Sunday night, I went to bed at 11. I got up at 3.30. I drove five hours down to New York okay, City th- th- to JFK Airport. Yeah. Got yeah. on a plane for six hours down to Tobago. I yeah. was, this is the race prep you don't ever do. Yeah, there's part of that. Here's your sign. Yeah, we'll cover that episode yeah. at some point. I'd love to do that. Yeah. yeah. That'd be fun. Ah, uh, November. The air is crisp, the leaves are falling, and I get to take a break from riding my bike. Now is a great time of year to rest and reflect on the past season. Visit Fast Talk Labs and take a look at our pathways on recovery and data analysis. These two in-depth guides can help you get the most from your off-season. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash pathways. Whose question is next? Robert. Do you know it's cold outside? There Baby, is it's cold snow outside. Snow on the ground as we, we speak right like now. A foot. Baby, it's cold outside. Sorry. Your singing adds so much to my life when we record. It should. Yeah. I'm tremendously bad at it. I wasn't going to say it. I'm just going to compliment Grant today. I can't even. <laughs> you can't even? 
Okay. I bet you can. <clears throat> hey guys, did you know that it's cold outside? <laughs> it's a bit chilly. I'm starting my throw all over again, just so you know. Oh okay. man. Yeah, it's cold out there, Rob. How cold is it? It's so cold, Trevor, that as I was riding last night, I came up with my question for today. What pro tips do you guys have that aren't the standard cold weather recommendations, right? Everybody knows you should dress in layers, you should wear synthetic or wool and not cotton. People know those things. What have you learned over the years that other people might not know that help you deal with riding or running or activities in the cold weather? This is like the question for me. Yeah, I was going to say, we got to turn to the Canadian. I'm from Canada. I've lived in the Pacific Northwest where it's 40 degrees and raining every single day. Which is about as cold as it gets. That's, I mean, 40 and raining worst. is frigid. 40 and so raining you know. is far worse than 14. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Though I, ha I, I have done a six-hour ride when it was negative 20. That's just stupid. What? Was Why? Fun. Was that Celsius or Fahrenheit? They're the, actually the same. That's right. They are the same. <laughs> That's why I didn't specify. Oh, the oh, suggestions the big on Trevor. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to be so nice to you and you're taking oh me apart gosh. today. All right. Number one, this is a new suggestion that I'm going to offer. Heated clothing, battery operated clothing. It works. Get heated socks. Battery-operated clothing. Nice. I use the, the I think it's Lenzyme. They are amazing. They were a game changer. Nice. That is number one. And I also have a heated vest. It is fantastic. Heated gloves, I sometimes use. They don't work as well. I started making this stuff for Perluzumi and it never came to market and is breaking my heart right now hearing you say all this. I mean, heated, but you have to be careful to not sweat because the second that you have moisture... They can handle the sweat. It just... They're fine. As wicked away. You're talking about two different things. You're saying from an electronic standpoint, you're saying from an if you're wet, you're cold standpoint, right? Yeah, but I guess if the battery doesn't run out, you're they fine. They aren't hot. So the first time I used the socks, I was like, these are broken. I'm not feeling any heat at all. Yeah. And I only had a half a charge in the battery. So like three hours into the ride, the battery went dead and all of a sudden my feet got really cold. And I went, oh, they do work. They just keep your room temperature. And that's, you never feel hot. You just don't feel cold. cold. Okay, great. But heated. unless the battery dies. Well, and then you feel then really you're cold. More. Yeah. So heated clothing. Yeah. What's your second tip, Trevor? Really good booties. Okay. Real, like everybody gets these thin booties because, oh, it's got to be arrow and, you know, I can't. It's winter. You're not trying to go fast. Get yep. the giant neoprene booties, <laughs> put them on. And I also put toe warmers on my shoes underneath the booties. Oh, you're a jerk. That was mine. Sorry. Toe warmers. And, and in my opinion, you should go with hand warmer because there's even more of the iron in there. They don't go inside your shoes. They go above your shoe, but underneath the yep. booty. Because you can't possibly shove another thing into your shoe and still have it fit appropriately without yeah. cutting off circulation. So that's another really key one is don't clamp your shoes down. You cut off blood flow. So I actually, in the winter, put mountain bike pedals on my bike and I use mountain bike shoes because they're looser, they're thicker, they're warmer. The road shoes are not designed to be warm. Okay, awesome. That's one. Was that three? Three. You want me to keep going? No. I want to hear from Grant. <laughs> Go Grant. Now I got a couple. One is get yourself a metal water bottle, an insulated metal water bottle. Bivo yes. makes them. They're fantastic. Insulated. Insulated. Not just metal. Not yep. just metal. Insulated metal water bottle. Hot tea. Hot tea. Hot anything. Mm. Hot water. Mm. Just steaming hot water. It's amazing what a difference a couple mouthfuls of warm hot water do from the inside yes. out. But that's not going to last, right? You put that in a regular plastic water bottle. It's cold, super fast, tastes like crap because you taste the plastic in the water bottle. And it really is worth it. The insulated water bottles, I'm a big fan. And this seems worth it both from a warming you from the inside out, but also from just a hydration standpoint. Right. And granted, maybe you don't need to hydrate as much in the cold because you're not sweating as much. But I know I will actively avoid drinking because that water bottle is usually frigid and it's right. an unpleasant experience. Right. If you're right. like me and you go out in really cold days, Sometimes water bottles freeze. Yes. Yeah, no doubt. I yeah. had done long rides where I didn't take a single drink because I had frozen water bottles. Yeah. <laughs> <With the laughs> insulated bottle. Key. Yeah, those are really nice. The other thing is we used to do this a ton when I was a kid because growing up in 
almost Canada, upstate New York, you get that we would double layer gloves. So mm-hmm. the yes. little silk mm-hmm. gloves and then a big roomy glove over the top of that glove. I think one of the things that you kind of alluded to with the don't do the tight booties, I think everybody kind of goes down that road. Don't be afraid to do some roominess in the gloves mm-hmm. because that heat can build up within that insulation piece and keep the fingers a little bit warm. If it's really tight in there, sometimes you're constricting the insulate or whatever's in there where it doesn't work quite as well. But you're also, listen, the whole reason you can get in, like do the sauna into the frozen lake thing is if you sit still, you warm the water around you and that water stays the temperature of your body and insulates you. The same thing can happen in the gloves. If you can warm a little bit of air around around those fingers, keeps the fingers warm. Mm -hmm. And I personally use ski gloves. Get good thick gloves. Don't go into that, oh, you know, I've got to have those thin gloves and again, be arrow or whatever it is. If you can easily shift your gears, your gloves aren't big enough. Well, and, and that's that was what I was going to point out is big gloves are great until you can't control your bike anymore because you're pinched between the mm-hmm. brake lever and mm-hmm. the handlebar and you can't effectively brake. So just make sure that your hand wear allows you to stop and everything So else. I will give you an alternative that is extremely warm. Brake mitts. These are these neoprene things that oh. go on your handlebars bar over your bar mitts. Yeah. Bar mitts. They go over your brake pads. Yep. I have gone out when it's like five degrees Fahrenheit with those, and I only need a thin glove because mm-hmm. it is so warm inside those. Yeah. Now, I will say this, that the cyclocross element of this, right? We will do races in zero. We've done races around here in zero. We've done races around here in negative. Nationals in Connecticut oh, was... Yeah. That was chilly. Yeah. Real quick, the worst part about that was it was warm earlier <laughs> and there was a running section that then froze into like a lunar pothole surface. That was the worst. That was pretty bad. Yeah. And then it started snowing during the uh, master's races. So mm-hmm. it snowed enough that you could not see said potholes. Yep. That was awesome. Anyway, we did Anyway, we, going on, one of the things that I'll do in cyclocross is put a little embro on the back of the hands. So embrocation mm. is something that it's like icy hot and it doesn't really create warmth but it creates the illusion of warmth Warmth. and i think on the back of the hands that's a really nice thing i'll i'll use it under my leg warmers just know that it will degrade your leg warmers because it's petroleum based over time so use your old ones but the other thing a little tip that i learned during cross is you will watch riders swinging their hands or banging their hands trying to get blood back into their hands you don't have to do that. Just rhythmically squeeze the handlebars. And that motion of rhythmically squeezing the handlebars will bring warmth and blood flow back to the hands and warm the hands back up. Back to the embryo side of things, I think that the irritation can actually induce a little bit of blood flow to that area. So granted, it's not necessarily adding external heat, but it might help you internally heat yourself. Yeah. One of the first episodes we did was on dressing for cold weather. And we did cover embrocation and and read a couple studies on it. And embro can actually have the opposite effect. It can block blood flow. Oh, really? Though you're feeling warm, it confuses your body and your body then says, I don't need blood flow there. And, and it will actually take blood flow away from the extremities. I know, but that shine on your legs. Oh, no, it looks mm. good. <laughs> so you've talked about hands. You've talked about feet. What about other exposed areas and how to keep so that warm? Head. Like your face, say, your there, ears. There aren't any Expose anything. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only important so, areas. <laughs> I'll make two points and then you guys can, can jump at this. One People tell you all the time you lose most of your heat from your extremities, so keep the extremities warm. Keeping the torso isn't as important. But there is a counter-argument to that. And first, yes, keep your extremities really warm. But you want blood flowing to your extremities, and your body prioritizes keeping your core warm. So if you're not wearing much on your core, all the blood is going to go there to protect the core, and you're not going to get any blood flow to the extremities. So they have shown multiple times in research that if you keep that core, if you keep your torso warm, your body's going to allow more blood flow to the extremities. So I do think it's important to have multiple layers. And one quick thing about the layers, do remember it's not about the thickness of the layer at all. You can do like a summer weight undershirt underneath another weight undershirt, 
like if you get sure. four layers on there, you're going to get, and this is more on the obvious vein that you didn't want to oh, necessarily guys, touch. Talking small social media worthy pro tips, guys. Come on. <laughs> talking too much. Okay. I'm kidding. Look, I'm kidding. Go. No, I'm I've, I've got to jump on my soapbox here because it is oh. a big soapbox and this thing drives me nuts. You have wear marks on your soapbox. You're on that thing so often. <laughs> You're just he's, he's been on the soapbox so much it's actually worn it's down. It's yeah. just yeah, it's, it's ground level at this point. Right, right there. <laughs> so it drives me nuts seeing people dramatically underdress in cold weather. And whenever you talk to people, it's always well, I don't want to sweat. I could tell you, having done many, many cold rides and having sweated—is that the correct term? Sweet, <laughs> sweated. Not at all. But let's write this on out. Many of them. <laughs> Sweating is not that bad. Overdressing and sweating a little is not a giant issue. Underdressing and getting really cold is. So to me, that argument is kind of like saying, if I handed you a glass of arsenic and a glass of something that might cause you indigestion, mm. you choose to drink the arsenic because you don't want to risk getting indigestion. Jeez, took the, that went, oh, wow. that escalated that quickly really right quick. there. Yeah. And that's just because you're going to continue to keep your body temperature up throughout the event anyway. If you are cold, you are doing damage. You are literally doing damage to your muscles. Mm -hmm. If you're warm, you're just a little uncomfortable. But I think, you know, one of the questions is what are you going to go do, right? If you're going to do in a base ride, you can keep that homeostatic place pretty easily because mm -hmm. you're doing the same kind of effort the whole way. If you're going and doing some sort of a race or some sort of a workout... Take some clothing off, do the workout, get the clothing back on after the workout so you can, yep. you know, use your layers to kind of keep everything in line. Well, so to bring this back to a pro tip type of format that I wanted to talk about, you know, climbing and descending is mm -hmm. very much in line with what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be removing clothing on the way up, not yep. wearing it. You might not be warm at the bottom, but you're going to be warm soon enough, but have that clothing that you can put back on when you're warm and then do yeah. the descent. So here's another pro tip, handlebar bag. To carry extra stuff with carry you. Carry a lot of extra gear. So if you're doing that long climb, put a bunch of your gear in mm -hmm. the bag, but then pull it out for the descent. Yeah. Some for me, you, Griffin, kicked it off and you were looking for things that weren't hands and feet. Mm -hmm. I do want to get to feet eventually again, but on the head side of things, no matter what, my head always gets really hot and I do have a few different winter specific warm cycling caps. I always find them to be too hot. Mm -hmm. So I oftentimes will do a combination of a traditional cycling cap with a headband over my ears because my ears get cold, but that allows a little bit better of a regulation of the heat on my head where it's not getting the direct airflow through my helmet. The cycling cap is blocking that, but my really exposed ears, they're able to be covered up and warm. So the head side, I strongly recommend neck tote or whatever you call it, that thing that completely covers neck gator. buff. Yeah, gator. Mm -hmm. I personally cover my head, but you can also, as you said, get ones that are more of a headband. Mm -hmm. Here's my take. I never cover my face. Even when I go out and it's like negative 20, I don't cover my face. Because my experience has been when you cover your face, whatever is covering it, uh, collects the moisture from your breath, that mm -hmm. moisture freezes, and I find that much more unpleasant. I would rather deal with that first 20, 30 minutes of my face being really cold. Eventually, the face goes numb, and then you're fine. <laughs> Serious. I, no, I think that I think you have a point with covering your mouth and your nose, but I do kind of like wearing the buff or the neck gaiter, whatever you want to yeah. call it, in a manner that is kind of like up high on the back of your head, but then down low over your yes. chin. Mm -hmm. And it's covering 70% of your exposed face, but it's not getting that hot, yep. warm breath that eventually freezes. Right. Grow a beard. Ooh, you could do that. I, without a doubt. I, I mean, I went through this with for years on the pool deck because I coached outside year round. Yeah. All those lucky athletes in the nice heated pool. Oh, it was, poor Grant. Yeah, it, it was rough. I'm it, sure it was, it was hard. But I do remember vividly that this was way back when I was still swimming and racing, competing. There was a brief period there. But you shaved down for the championship meet. Mm -hmm. And I remember going back on the pool deck after I had shaved. And I was like, <laughs> I could not get warm. Really? Oh I could not get warm. Man. I mean, there is something to body hair that helps regulate heat. Grow your leg hair back in the winter. Wow, interesting. Yep, I do. I do. Same thing. Can we switch back to feet real quick? Yeah. Grant, yeah. you probably know this. Mm -hmm. Trevor brought up shoe covers, mm -hmm. right? For us, 
shoe covers don't really work very well for people who do cyclocross or mountain bike because inevitably (laughs) they flip off the front of your toes and you got this little like mouth flapping Mm -hmm. around. You could duct tape that stuff down, but I don't know. That's just a messy way of doing it. I have old shoes that I have aqua sealed brand name, the thick sort of polyurethane goop, all of the vents, all of the holes, everything closed. And oftentimes with a pretty warm pair of socks in there and no airflow through them, I stay pretty warm and they're perfect for cross racing in the cold. The cheap version of that is bread bags. Inside. Yep. Did that with my kids last night on the way to practice. I yep. happened to have some some new bike parts for them in the car that happened to have bags on them. I was like, perfect. So that was a big one when I lived in the Pacific Northwest when it was always raining and cold. You put you coat your feet in Vaseline, mm-hmm. then you put the bread bag or the grocery bag and use an elastic band so that no water can get through mm-hmm. and completely seal off your foot. The only reason to wear your socks underneath your leg warmers is if you have a plastic bag under there. I just want to go back in time and be the first person who thought of that and just like, yeah, I'm going to put petroleum jelly all over my feet. Yeah, like, no, th- th- let's tell me more about this one. Yeah. This is maybe a pro tip that it's I don't know. not pleasant, but it's far better <laughs> than the alternative. <laughs> is it more or less pleasant than Embro on your feet? Oh, Embro on your feet's awesome. I've never tried Embro. Until you get in the shower after. And then you can't stand. That's the only problem with Embro is that it feels like it works the best. Because it does. Two hours later when you're in the shower. You just, you definitely got to take a moment and wipe down your legs before you get in the shower. And then after you've wiped down your legs with a towel, you're okay with destroying because the Embro is going to be like deep in there. Spray yourself down with a little diluted mixture of dish soap and water and get even more of that Embro off because no matter what, it's a bit of an experience in that hot water. Yeah, nobody warned me about that my first shower. That was <laughs> well, unpleasant. Last two body areas I have a question about. Mm-hmm. One is our trunk, right? Because this gets cold. Question. She's pointing to her crotch, let's be honest. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> Kelly, cut that out. No, I was pointing to my butt. <laughs> <laughs> so one, and maybe that's just me projecting because that's like the first thing that gets, one of the first things that gets cold for me. But second, speaking of females and keeping our trunk warm, like the chest, right? And there are heated options as well, but I'm not sure if any of you have coached female athletes, but I think those are the two areas that we have not talked about. Yeah, one of my tips actually addresses the first one, but in kind of an indirect way. Cycling clothing is expensive and tights are expensive. A way to make that go a little bit further is to get some longer over tights that don't have a chamois in them and yes. to wear regular bib shorts underneath the tights. That's what I do. That way, you know, everybody has a ready supply of regular bib shorts. You can be changing those out every day, but you're not necessarily washing or getting your over tights as dirty because your nether regions are protected by exactly. the undershort. And I, I buy the warmest tights, as you said, without a chamois that you can get. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then that also has the dual nature of adding a little bit of extra protection in an area that's not doing much work and is exposed to a lot of airflow and can get pretty cold. So in terms of the upper torso, again, the simplest solution is multiple layers with zippers. Like put three, four layers on. And then again, when you're getting warm, you're doing the workout, you can unzip one or two. You can control the temperature. The thing about the tights that I think is really interesting is, again, coming back to that whole idea of not everything has to be tight. Mm-hmm. The over tights that are a little loose, not loose enough that they're going to get in the way of the Mac or anything like that. But, you know, a lot of companies make the full zips, the full zip pants for cross or skiing. Nordic skiing full yeah. zip pants are awesome. And that, okay, that's my last pro tip. Nordic ski wear. Mm-hmm. Don't buy cycling gear, buy Nordic ski gear. They've made it to be windproof. They've made Mm -hmm. it to be waterproof. They've made it to be all of those things. For years, we would be racing in Nordic ski gloves because they were windproof. They were all those things. And I could never find a cycling glove that could hold a candle to it. Now I get a lot of ski gear. My last pro tip, put your road bike away if you're a road cyclist. Get the gravel bike or even the what's what's the one with the giant thick tires why am i blanking on the name uh, the ones with the fat, bike the fat tires fat, bike. <laughs> fat tire bike <laughs> well it is trevor thanks right. but point being like slow that bike down bring the air pressure mm-hmm. down everything 
when it's cold outside, speed is not your friend. Yeah. Nor are you trying to be fast. Make the bike as slow as possible. If you can be doing a hard workout at seven miles an hour, Great. you're going to enjoy the cold a lot better. Fenders. Fenders. Yes. Hugely important for not only you, but the people behind you. <laughs> and the fender should go to the ground. I kid you not. Yeah, that one's big. Like It is worth the fender that is full tire on the back and a good chunk of the front. They've gotten a lot better. They have gotten a lot better. Right. No, I showed up when I was racing with CSU. I showed up on my bike. I just moved from Pacific Northwest, so I had this huge fender on it. And everybody was making fun of me. Going, Why you got that fender? And then we all went out for a ride in the rain, and everybody was fighting to sit on my wheel. Oh. Yeah. Well, it was Colorado, so it was the one time it rained over the course of three months. People don't Pretty know much. what to do. <laughs> but I, I was the hero that one time of three months. Listeners, the guide you've been waiting for is here. Our guide to the polarized training method. Visit FastTalkLabs.com to see our new deep dive into polarized training featuring Dr. Steven Seiler, me, Trevor Connor, and coaches Ryan Bolton and Alan Cousins. In this groundbreaking comprehensive guide, we show you how to polarize, why it works, how it compares, how to measure it, how to coach it, how it changes over the season, and how to know when it's working for you. This is a season you can master the polarized training method. Join Fast Talk Labs to start polarized training. See more at FastTalkLabs.com. What do we think? Do we get some tips in there? Maybe some take-homes for people? Somebody's going to incorporate one of those? Yeah, I think so. I got something out of it. Hot tub when you get home. Tub it up. Sounds like (laughs) the off-season to me. (laughs) Which brings us to my question. And mine is very general, and I'm kind of interested to see where you guys take this. And I put the phrase in quotes, what does the off-season mean to you guys? I thought it was an interesting question. And for Thank me, you. well, because I was talking with an athlete the other day of, of sometimes the answer to the question isn't as important as the process it took to get to the answer. And that's why the question is so important to ask, right? So the thing I was thinking about, Grant, was I think that the off-season is any time that I would de-emphasize training in a purposeful manner not as a reaction to something, but as a preparatory decision for any sustainable amount of time. I think oftentimes the off-season tends to fall around now for people, but it doesn't necessarily have to. And I would maybe extend that thinking to other times of the year that training really has to take a backseat to something else, whether that's social because you want to spend time with the holidays. Maybe you have a ton of work trips for the next three months and you have to deprioritize. I tend to look at those in very similar manners. I just want to clarify because we clarified this off mic beforehand. I, when I think of the off season, I think of something that's like two, three weeks where you're truly off. You're defining that off season as that plus probably that first month or two where you're training, but you're so far out from the season, it's not that critical. Ultimately, it's any time the training is not first and foremost. There are times where for the best performance, you really have to put your emphasis on training. You have to maybe, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Grant, I can't get beers with you tonight because I got a hard workout. There are other times of the year where it's like, screw the workout, man, I'm getting a beer. That is the off season to me. And that could be, If you're a super dedicated racer that's racing multiple seasons, that could be two or three weeks. If you're maybe like more of a general recreational rider or racer, then maybe that's more like two or three months. Well, I'll I'll start it out by saying to me, it's two things. One, you just covered. The off season is when if you got friends going out, if you're not feeling up to it, it's okay to say I'm skipping the workout, which I I personally will tend not to do at the height of the season. You know, it's got to do the work. You got to get out there. You got to make it happen. Off season, you don't necessarily have to. The other thing that the off season is for me is the time to do all that stuff. You can't necessarily do it other times of the year. So I spend a lot of time running. If I'm on the bike, I go and do those routes that aren't good training. Mm. I spent a lot of time in the gym. I get involved in other sports. I was hoping to play tennis this year, but there's a foot of snow on the ground. (laughs) So that sort of thing. And I think that's part of why I asked the question as I was interested in different people's versions of what off-season means to them. I use this phrase a lot with athletes, be active, but don't train. Mm -hmm. 
Because it's different, right? If I look at somebody like one of the elites that I coach, we get to a very dedicated offseason and we're taking time off. I don't want them to train at all. I don't want them to run. I don't want them to hike. I want them to basically lay in bed. I want their body to recover. And I remember back in the day when I was racing triathlon at a fairly elite level, I would finish Maui. It was Xterra Worlds. And I remember telling people that the first week, I just, my body didn't want to do anything, right? It was kind of what you were mentioning. It shut down. It was done. Mm -hmm. I don't have to. Rad. We're not doing anything. And I would just lay around. What always would happen during that second or third week that I took completely off, nothing would hurt anymore. I would get into this place where I would wake up and I'd be, this is amazing. I feel amazing. Like my knees don't hurt. My hips don't hurt. Nothing hurts. I'm not sore. Holy crap. That's great. But by the end of the third week, I was like, okay, I feel slow and fat. I got to get going again. Like for me, it was a very distinct progression through that time off. So that's one piece as an elite athlete, take time off, don't do anything. But I think that conversation very much changes with the age of not putting you in this Griffin, the age of the boys in this room. We're older. I'm 50. Trevor's 73. Um, Rob's, I don't know, like 12 mentally, (laughs) (laughs) but you get in a place where training or the bike or exercise is a part of who we are. It's a part of what we do. It's a part of our break from the stress of life. It's a part away. It's really, really important to me to stay active. Like things start to fall apart mentally if I'm not active. So for me, that becomes an off season. Isn't this period of inactivity to let everything recover It's a period kind of like what you're talking about, Trevor, do something different, be active, but don't train. And I think that becomes a really important distinction. And I think far too many athletes go one way or the other. They, oh, I can't stop training or take a break because this is what my life is. And this is how I do my life really, really well. No, you still need some sort of a break, at least mentally, or an elite athlete that doesn't take that full on time off because they're afraid of losing something. Since joining Fast Talk Labs and talking about off-season in general, something that I've heard a little bit more and a little bit more of has been looking at off-season, not necessarily from Trevor, but just the people that I've been able to meet, is looking at off-season as a time of play and experimentation. And beyond that, first and foremost, for the purpose of joy, really enjoying your life and, and what else can be added to it. Secondly, from this competitive edge or opening up a second career door of, can I diversify, you know, my activity in sports? And so I think that's been something that's been introduced to me. One, like I said, a sense of play and just not everything has to have a purpose. Not everything has to have a trophy or a podium at the end of it. And then secondly, wait a minute, can this give me an edge somehow? I think that's really interesting. And you know how I feel about the word joy, right? Like joy is everything to me. And I think the off season. Joy, joy, happy, happy, joy. (laughs) Man, a Ren and Stimpy reference? That's fantastic. (laughs) The greatest shows of all time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where to go with that. But you know, you you know how I feel about that that Mm -hmm. word and that idea in sport. And it's so easy, especially leading into the big event to lose some of that joy and to find ways to bring that back. Trevor talks about riding the roads that he wouldn't train on. Mm -hmm. That's big. Like you you don't necessarily think about it, but you get stuck in these ruts of doing the same thing because that's the good training road or that's the grade I want, or that's the loop time I want. And I think bringing some of those elements back into what you're doing, bringing that joy of like, Oh yeah, this is why I ride the bike Mm -hmm. is, is a really, really big deal. So I kid you not. During the season when I'm training hard, I'll constantly pass roads where I'm like, I wonder what's down there, but I can't do it today because I got <laughs> intervals. I keep an app on my phone where I write down the roads that I saw. Then, like, I want to go explore that. And my off season is when I pull that out. That's so Trevor. That's and so go, sweet. And go and explore them. <laughs> the, the other side of this is how have you not? I think written... that was even a shot from Griffin. <laughs> I, I'm like that was the cutest thing. <laughs> I want to uh, know these roads. Griffin brings <laughs> the best parts to these shows. Well, that, yeah, that's the other side of this for me is how do you not know every inch of every road in the surrounding 100 miles This by is now? the whole thing. There are a bunch of little... So half the times you go up them, it's like it's a mile long and it's nothing. 
But every once in a while, you find something really cool. I have questions. What does it for you on these roads? Is it the architecture? What's happening here? It's something new. I love to explore. See, and that's my point, right? Like, is the purpose of off-season this exploration, play that doesn't have a goal attached to it at the end? means to an end, yeah. Mm -hmm. The thing I'm going to add is don't set the length of your off-season. Don't say, I'm going to have two weeks and then I'm back at it. You need to kind of go with how you feel. So I've had some off seasons where I was pretty motivated and got right back on the bike and back to training pretty quick. I think of my best season ever was 2007. 2006 ended rough. I got hit hard by a car and then injured, had to do two more stage races. So I was done at the end of 2006. And I took the typical off season, got to the point where we'd normally be back to training and went, no. I don't want to, and spent all of November playing tennis, did not touch my bike, took much, much longer off season than I had ever taken, and went on to have my best season ever. And then I think that this is a good point in both directions, right? Where if you haven't been training purposefully for a significant amount of time, if you haven't been working towards specific goals and those are now behind you, do you need an off season or can you continue forward because you don't need to come back down from something? You know, I've made this argument before. This is going to sound like it's off topic, but I think it is on on topic. I make the argument that people are like, oh, you can only stay peaked for so long. I agree with that, but I think most people think that that's a physical thing. It's mm-hmm. not as much a physical thing as it is a mental thing, yep. right? So your form, you could... In theory, if you race, recover, race, recover, and you really time it right, you could be on form for a long time physically. But mentally, that is a lot to ask, sure. mm-hmm. right? And and I think that's the point you're making mm-hmm. a little bit. When you've made that sacrifice, you've made that singular focus for yourself mentally, when you get to a place where you get to shut that down, that's the key. And People who do it really, really well can do this proactively throughout the season. Well, I have a vacation coming up in June. I'm going to plan my life around that vacation. I'm going to go on that vacation. I'm going to shut down. If you're planning those things in three times a year, four times a year, maybe you don't need this really distinct, dedicated off-season. Maybe you use the holidays as the off-season. Can't tell you how many times I've talked, especially with master's athletes, but I do this with my professional ones too. What are you doing for the holidays? Well, I'm going here and I think I'm going to bring my bike. Don't bring your bike. What? Just don't bring your bike, dude. Just go and enjoy the holidays. It's four days. You're not going to lose anything. Think about what you might gain. So we had several listeners of the show reach out and say, why do you always recommend detraining in the off-season, letting your fitness come down? Why don't you just maintain it? And so being who I am, I said, let's try it. Let's experiment. So I had a good season 2007 and just said, I'm going to keep my fitness. And detrained it. Like I went into base training, so lost a little bit of the top end, but really didn't have the detraining I typically have. And I can tell you December, January, February, half of March of 2018, I was putting out the best numbers I'd ever put out in the winter. I got to May and exploded in a way I've never exploded before. Yeah. And it's hard to delineate. It's hard to define whether that is more mental or physical because they both have a component to it for sure. But for me, I just know that it's so much mental. And this comes all the way back to your point, Trevor, of like really understanding where you are, how much that season took out of you or how much that last event took out of you or what do you need? And being able to communicate that with your coach, you know what? I need a week. I need a little bit of time. And I think that this is what you just said at the end is really important. I think that this is something that a coach can help an athlete with because they're an objective third party that's able to see the bigger picture and make larger recommendations on what is and isn't appropriate based on feedback provided explicitly by the athlete, but also feedback in terms of observation that the coach is making about the athlete for the past year or multiple years. And I think oftentimes it can be difficult for an individual to know in this situation, what is best for them? Oh, absolutely. I would go so far as to say that an individual is going to be constantly conflicted. Mm -hmm. I don't know very many athletes that are very good at sitting there saying, you know what? I need more time. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's wrong to say. A lot of them will say, I think I might need more time, but I can't take it now, or I can't afford to do this, or I don't want to detrain, or I don't want to go down those roads. That's why the 
the relationship between the athlete and the coach is so essential is to have that place that you can go, Hey man, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And if, and if the response is always, well, that's the plan, stick to the plan. No offense. I think you need to find a new coach. Coach athlete relationship is a partnership and you need to be able to be looking at each other going, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Where do we go from here? And really understand that that decision has been made together and that the plan still has the agility and the ability to change because it's going to change. I think having, you know, a goal for the athlete to be able to increasingly be able to voice or understand, be self-aware of what time they need to, I I think to expect that someone's going to have that at the outset is unrealistic, but having a coach give that feedback over time that almost gives them permission. Like you had said, like, no, 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 no. You're going to be okay with four days off or like, go have a second piece of cake. You will be okay. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you're going to have a beer, a hot toddy, great time of year, right? Whatever. (laughs) Seriously, you know, no, I'm going to jump in. You're wearing a corduroy jumpsuit. I'm pretty sure I watched you pull a Kleenex out of your sleeve earlier, and now you busted out hot time. You really think I am a grandma? I, I, I a think Midwest. What kind of rad grandmas <laughs> are you knowing? And please introduce them to me that wear white high tops and corduroy jumpsuits. Oh, no. I, absolutely, I know those grandmas. They're awesome. Introduce You're going to be a great grandma to, one day. Thank but you. That, go, go on. I'm sorry. Okay. No, it's, it's fair, <laughs> and I need you to introduce me to them. They sound amazing. But there is this, in any relationship that we have, we have an opportunity, especially in that type of dynamic, to reflect back someone like, it's going to be okay. And sometimes we need external permission that we can kind of co-opt and then take on as our own. And then over time, we can start to give ourselves that permission. And then over time, it becomes less about permission. Absolutely. And it becomes a proactive measure of creating space. So I really like how you talked about that. And then to the point of, and if your coach is not doing that, dump him. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, the, it's the key point of any relationship, right? And you're in the early part of any relationship and you're looking for permissions. And then when somebody is creating an environment where that permission is assumed, like they're like, no, you don't need permission. And let me help you understand that you yeah. don't. That's when it starts to become this really balanced, supported relationship. And not to get off topic here, but I can't tell you how many athletes are going to walk in the door for coaches that are listening for everybody that don't understand that they're allowed to do that. They've Mm -hmm. never been allowed to do that. Youth sport does not create that. Mm -hmm. And my desire to go on tangents on development and sport are it's through the roof, but we don't create that autonomy in many young athletes. So they come to these relationships with a coach that maybe is able to do that and they don't have their voice yet. Yeah. The coach's job is to help them find that voice. And then the relationship can be what it can be. But to add to that. that, if you are one of those athletes who obsesses the numbers, looks a lot at the charts, particularly if you are self-coached, the offseason is a time to stop looking because you are not going to like what you see. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't looked at my performance management chart in weeks, but I can guarantee you my CTL is in the 40s right now. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of athletes out there who, if they saw that, they would panic. Oh, my God, I'm in the 40s. My season's over. Personally, if, if you ask me for a CTL, Mark, I'm not ready to start training until it is tanked down that low. <laughs> well, and I would even go so far as that I, I like what you say about don't look. As much as I know that, as much as I know to not look at those numbers, dude, those numbers are addicting yep. to everybody. To me as a coach for a long time that would never look at CTL for an athlete. Like I don't honestly look at it unless something's wonky. Then I go back and look at I look at mine every day and I shouldn't look at mine every day. You know, I, I know better than that. So that separation is really, really smart. Just put it away for a little bit. That's something we've said about cross season for a long time. It's an inevitable dive during cross season just because it doesn't understand it. So don't look. But yeah, that's a great point. Well, do we have anything else to add to this conversation? I think we have a lot of things to add, but I think that's a good place to stop. I'd agree. So Grant. Yes, sir. I feel like today was kind of a revenge for you because we have beaten up on you so much in this episode. You used today, you got all of us. You even called Griffin a grandma. 
Well, I don't, I, Griffin came on. I don't want her to not feel part of the group. I want her to feel like <laughs> loved and involved oh in that. It's really important that I treat you guys like crap to know that you're loved. <laughs> Do you feel loved, Griffin? I feel so loved. And honestly, if this is how the grandmas, you know, they <laughs> talk about hot toddies and they wear high tops and I'm in the right crowd. I'm you're doing in. it right. Yeah, you. you're doing great. Thanks. So, Grant, I feel like you should take us out today. I don't know where to take us. This has been another episode of Fast Talk. That's all I know. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are... Those of the individual. Yes. <laughs> Not of Fast Talk. Please listen, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if your podcast app has something where you can put a comment in, put a comment in. Tell us how we're doing. Why are you laughing? I'm doing the best I can. Oh, I'm sorry. I love that. No, man, I... This has been another episode of Fast Talk. I'm Rob Pickles. Behind door number two. You're not baiting me into doing it. <laughs> I'm trying. You're not. Come on, that voice is really good. You should be a game show host. He has a point. You do have a good voice. I'm not doing it. I'm so depressed. My day is just not going to be the same. Thanks for listening. For the grouchy grantology, the grandma, Griffin McMath, the very tired Rob Pickles. I'm Trevor Connor. Ha <laughs> <laughs>